I'm Steve Summers, the uh, writer-director of this thing. And to my left is Bob Doucet, the executive producer and uh, editor. Hello, everybody. Here we go. Didn't we just finish this movie? So as we sit here in, in ADR 6 on the Universal lot a couple months after this movie is open, um, the picture is closing in on about $200 million at the domestic box office and steaming toward another $200 million in the foreign box office. And, and the great thing about that is not the money specifically, but the fact that so many people have seen the movie. And when you make a movie like this, there's, there's really nothing more important than people seeing and enjoying the film. That strange slurping sound you're hearing is... It's not a problem with your sound system, it's just me drinking coffee. Okay, what can we say about this? <laughs> I feel like I just shot it, like, a month ago. Um, extras are always a difficult thing to work with, a difficult group of people. Uh, sometimes they're great, sometimes extras can be fantastic and they always, like, make your movie so much bigger and better, but they can be very difficult because they always want to laugh when it's quite inappropriate to do so. Now, here we had a, a really great shot I wanted to use. We were on the Batmobile, this traveling camera car, and going about 30 miles an hour, and we had 300 guys chasing us, and there's this fantastic shot. But unfortunately, when we saw it in dailies, the guy front and center was uh, wearing big purple Calvin Klein underwear under his... Which is not overly appropriate for the period, I don't think. No, unfortunately, no, it didn't. Now, those were all multiplication shots. We had, usually in all those shots you just saw, there's three to 500 people out in the desert. But, of course, we made it, made it look like 10,000, or ILM did. Buddy's up there. The Rock only shot for a couple of days uh, uh, on the sequence, and uh, uh, that, that, I know, was a, a very difficult um, uh, thing to uh, accomplish because you really only had him a few days. And he's doing all this. He had... Uh, he not only had food poisoning, he arrived in Morocco and was there for two days when he got extreme food poisoning. And then uh, he got sunstroke, which is rather debilitating. And he still did the, that whole fight and all of this stuff. And he would be, it was about 125 to 128 degrees out in the desert. And he would be wrapped in blankets, freezing. Um, <laughs> but the minute I called him to camera, he'd just get up and do it. So he really gutted it out through that uh, fight sequence. It's always fun to have sand blown on you, too. This was all uh, shot in Morocco. These are called the Merzuga dunes, some of the most spectacular dunes in the world. We shot a lot of uh, Mummy One out here as well. We'd get up usually about 2.30 uh, in the morning and head out there and start shooting by 4.30 in the morning because by 8.30 in the morning you couldn't film anymore. Because as soon as the sun crests the dunes and the, these shadows go away, the dunes just look, look very flat and boring. and um, So that was the time frame from 4.30 to 8.30 in the morning. And then we'd go in for closer shots like this sort of stuff and uh, you know, so pound some light in there. But dunes are really unbelievably just spectacular until the, uh, the sun gets too high and the, sand go, uh, the shadows go away. This uh, oasis forming here is obviously it's uh, all uh, computer generated. Uh, by our friends at ILM. Uh, the plates are photographed in, in Morocco with the rock, uh, and then the uh, foliage is uh, added later in post-production. This was shot on the back lot at Shepperton Studios, or Pinewood Studios, actually, this one. 
You can tell about the roller skating guys, Bob? Oh, yeah, if you look deep in the background there, you'll see the guys in the fence just in the back there. They seem to be, I don't know, skating almost. Uh, one of the um, tricks that uh, the visual effects company was will be very uh, unhappy that we pointed out to, to you. So we set this next shot up, and with all the burning flames, and uh, it was kind of painful setup. It's been about four hours getting this shot together, and then, of course... We warned everybody, I said, nobody moves, it doesn't matter, unless the rock himself catches on fire, nobody moves, and of course, the minute the background caught on fire, which it was supposed to do, a Moroccan fireman with a pith helmet, shiny silver pith <laughs> helmet ran in, so we had to remove him in post. This sequence here was uh, photographed um, on a series of sets at uh, Shepperton Studios in, uh, in London. Uh, designed by Alan Cameron, uh, who's worked with Steve on numerous pictures. Real rats. We picked that, that particular tape because of the rats. We thought the rats did a great job. I love these couple of shots here because they're such, um, you know, uh, 30s, 40s, serial-looking, um, you know, great. You know, it's a, it's a great intro to our hero. That must be one hell of a spider, though, you got to admit. We'll have to show him in the next movie. And he could be a creature in the next movie. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a take where actually Brendan's hair almost caught on fire here. I didn't notice it. I'm looking at the monitor, and, and his top of his head was just above frame. And uh, he stopped performing and, and had this strange look on his face. I go, no, no, Brendan, go, keep going, keep going. It's great, it's great. And he goes, no, it's not. And that was when his hair was on fire. Now, if you, you notice coming up, there's this shot with where we introduced the little kid. It was very effective in the theaters. People tended to leap out of their seats. Um, but why is he so high? Look, he's as tall as Brendan almost there. We just had to, we had to put him up on a couple of uh, apple crates. But it's one of the sort of cheats that when you're making a movie that if the audience is in the scene, which obviously they were in this particular case, they don't notice. We should start pointing out some of our our mistakes, Bob. People like that in Mummy One. Or, <laughs> that we, when we left uh, this this session after doing Mummy One, Bob and I were all depressed. We thought, boy, we're such a bunch of amateurs and dopes. And we found out later everybody liked the fact that we <laughs> we sh we showed all of our mistakes and pointed out. See, I was thinking we were just proving that once again doing this one. <laughs> the amateur part, that is. I told many people that uh, the reason I picked nine years later is because I'd already worked with, I didn't want to work with babies, and I'd already worked with five-year-olds. And so once I decided there was going to be a kid in the movie, I said I wouldn't work with anybody under the age of eight or nine. And that's how we this movie ended up being nine years later. This sequence here was uh, lampooned on the uh, MTV Movie Awards uh, rather well with uh, Jimmy Fallon as Rick and Kirsten Dunst as Evie and Oded Fair as, as, as Ardeth Bay playing himself. You know, they did a great job with the sets and the lighting. Kid gets more and more like you every day. You know enough people have seen a movie when you can make fun of it and people know what they're talking about. Hammer and chisel. And when they knocked down this door, this just this is the day I was on I was on edge because we had um, 300 scorpions and I don't know 200 tarantulas and, and it was just um 
you know, everything had to be just, just drove me nuts. It just took forever because like take two was they had to get, go in there and pick up each one of these things one by one and put them back in their boxes and then reset them. And so, uh, it's funny because it's such a simple shot that just flows by, uh, seemingly simple shot. And yet, uh, you know, it's something that took, you know, an enormous amount of time and created an enormous amount of frustration. I always like that. And no scorpions or tarantulas were killed while filming this scene. Except for these guys. And they walk right out onto Soundstage 6, Shepperton Studios. Or D, D stage. Now this shot here, um, the foreground element was shot in Morocco with the horses uh, uh, coming in there and the background is an ILM matte painting. And a lot of the reasons, part of the reason we didn't shoot this stuff in, in Egypt at the real locations is because um, th this is in, 19, in the 30s when this is supposed to take place. Everything looked different than it does now. Not everything, but you know now there are skyscrapers and Abu Simbel has been moved completely. They had to brick by brick take it apart and move it across the river. So we wanted it to look authentic. That and the fact that we were banned from Egypt for... <laughs> So that may that may have been another thing <laughs> yeah. that came into play. I did get to get to, get to go location scouting there several times, but um, and we uh, some of the digital work was is right out of Egypt, but we didn't get to spend a lot of time shooting there. This sequence used to go on a little bit longer. Um, the uh, trap that Freddy's character built, um, one of the three goons, uh, gets his hand caught in the trap, and uh, it actually got a, a good laugh. But uh, we wanted to keep the the tone of the sequence uh, more serious so that the threat uh, of these three guys uh, coming after the O'Connells was, um, was better. That's one of the cheapest effects there. We just shot, we shot Rachel uh, one week with the, this room looking 3,000 years old and uh, and pristine, and then three weeks later we shot it where they'd uh, mucked it all up. And she just, as she swishes the torch, we do a quick dissolve. Cheap effect, but effective. Those two guys are brothers, by the way. I don't, think, I don't know if you knew that. But <laughs> I don't know if it's important, but... I'm thinking they've got a really bad job. <laughs> it's gotta be boring. But have you seen those guys outside of Buckingham Palace? No, it's true, but we, we also, in another sequence that was cut from the film, we, we later meet those guys again uh, and realize that they've, they've decomposed and they, they turn into, uh, well, they're not exactly mummies, but they're, they're decomposed corpses. So, so they really were in that room for all of eternity. But it just slowed things down, so we kept it going, cut it out. I just had a vision. It was, it was like my dream, but it was real. It was like I was actually here. And it... One of the things that's really um, was was easier of, in in cutting this movie versus the last one was that we knew going in um, what the tone of the picture should be. Uh, in the first picture, uh, in the first movie, Mummy One, we were uh, struggling a little bit trying to figure out uh, exactly what the balance between comedy and you know horror and adventure um, should be. 
And with the knowledge of the first film, we went into this film uh, with, uh, with a much better idea of what that should be. So it made actually cutting the film from a tone standpoint much easier. It was pretty much A to B, just Bob just kind of <laughs> put things together. Yeah, it was really easy. Uh, what was really nice just working with all the actors, they also got the tone, they understood. And it's like if I go, I, before I started this movie, I thought, well, if I could go back and change anything on the first one, I wouldn't because it made so much money. But uh, I thought, if I'm going to do the sequel, I, should, I would like to make it a little more scary, a little less broad. And so that's sort of what we went after. And, and surprisingly enough, it, we, I think we did that. But um, it, it also gets as many good laughs as, uh, as the first one, if not more. I tell you, those those scorpions and and uh, uh, tarantulas just—they must leap up on that guy's shoes. <laughs> yeah, if you know, we call that wasn't that the uh, the uh, bug magnet shoe? Yeah, what was the name of that? Bug magnet shoes. <laughs> he just walks into the room and they cling to it like mad. If you notice little insert shots like that where people are, a hand comes in and brushes stuff away, you'll notice that Evie's got about four different types of hands because, like, second unit will shoot those inserts. And they'll use whatever girl happens to be on the set that day, uh, whatever actress or extras around, so her her fingers grow and shorten. And this shot right here, where the rock comes in on uh, Spivey's butt, uh, that rock is CG. The actual rock, uh, you know, is in there, uh, but you couldn't see it because it came through the frame too quickly. So it was replaced with a uh, computer-generated rock. So there's lots of visual effects in the movie that you would never imagine are visual effects. I always wanted to tighten this little bit here, but it was, you had to show where Brennan found the key, and he gives it to Rachel, and worked out. A lot of cobwebs. I like cobwebs. I think they kind of, you know, they're adventure movie stuff, but I don't know. I've never seen a place with that many cobwebs, except in movies. Don't tell anybody, but I may have kept that prop for myself. <laughs> shots here where you see the shake uh, that's also done in post-production the uh, actors know that this is going to be done so you see them moving around a bit um, it allows uh, Steve to have more control over the way that it's done versus uh, doing it in camera actors always feel totally ridiculous doing this stuff it's like pure Star Trek you know, it's like shake and pretend we're pretend the room is shaking the shot where Red just ran by and the water burst through, that's also a visual effect. Uh, he's not in the same scene uh, when it's photographed. Or he's not in the same, he's not there at the same time that, it, that the water bursting through is photographed. Now this the sequence coming up where uh, Freddie knocks down all the pillars. Uh, you know, it was a, a wink and a nod to the Mummy 1 where Evie ends up knocking down all the, you know, in a 360 degree shot, all the bookshelves. And on Mummy 1, we, we knocked down all those bookshelves, 360 degree shot on take one. It was really spectacular and really jazzed us. Unfortunately, <laughs> I think this is take five. Uh, you know, we'd come in, we'd set up, take us a whole morning to shoot it, and then the first time we shot it, there was so much dust and smoke you couldn't see anything. So we'd go away and shoot something else that afternoon, the next morning come in again for take two, and take two, one of the third pillar like stopped dead and didn't, it didn't function. So we'd go away and shoot again something, and that went on for five days coming back to the set, shooting it every morning, trying to get this shot. 
until finally they all went. And the great thing was Steve didn't mind at all. He was happy to go back there day after day after day. <laughs> you know, his, his whole attitude about it was great. I actually did Freddy's hair myself there. I, at the last second, quickly <laughs> mussed it up. The actors did not like shooting this scene. They were really good. Brendan and Rachel are complete troopers. Really terrific to work with, always. But, but I don't know, I've done this several times now, put, trying to put actors underwater with a set that's closing in on them. Uh, even though there's lots of safety, there's like, you know, scuba divers on either side of them. Um, there's something sort of terrifying <laughs> about being in a small environment that's closing in on you. And, you know, they're only five or six feet away from safety, but the water's dark. They can't see where they are. It's churning. Something about that. Now, right here, this next shot, they're on skateboards. We jerk them across the floor. You can kind of see if you look under there, the skateboards. Mom, Dad, I can explain everything. I'm sure that water's really tasty. This sequence here was uh, photographed in England. If you uh, can at, believe that. At, at a quarry. Uh, <laughs> and, and in fact, um, uh, you know, if you, if you were to study it closely, you could probably find a few places where it's raining because uh, it's raining in most of, uh, most of this photography. Uh, we were very careful in cutting it to uh, avoid any stuff where you could really see it. Um, and then also on even a couple of effect shots and later in the sequence, uh, I'm not sure what ILM did to remove the rain, but they did somehow. It rained the first time. On Mummy One we shot in England, we were there for four months, and, and all my friends on the crew said, uh, you know, oh, this is so strange that it's raining every day. We usually have beautiful summers. And it was Mummy Returns that I realized they were all lying to me because it rained every day in London while we were shooting this, and we were there for almost five months. So... <laughs> uh, but this was pretty amazing to find this big, huge sand quarry. In fact, strangely enough, they, they, they a lot of the sand gets shipped to Saudi Arabia. It, it's uh, it's super fine sand that they use for something or other. I don't think it's important. But anyway, uh, we, this whole sequence was shot about 20 miles outside of London. Maybe you should make something up, you know, as to what the sand's used for. I'll, you know, what, we'll go back and I'll come up with something. Again, this shake is all added in post. The actors are just pretending to rock. That's somebody's hand jerking that lamp there. Now coming up, my second unit director shot a couple, of, not these shots, but the overhead shots. There's an overhead shot. And like, see, I have everybody's backing away. And then my second unit director shot this, and he decided that they all should be coming towards the sand. And Greg and I, we've been together for 15 years since film school. <laughs> And I don't know. We, we we keep arguing about this. If if that was me, I would back away from this thing. But he decided that no, he that his extras would be curious, and we would be heading towards it. So uh, I don't know. What do you think? Would you run away or head towards? Well, no matter what, I'm sure that Greg is really happy that you brought that up. <laughs> this is the shot I was talking about earlier. That uh, you know there was clearly rain in the background as these lights pan. You would see the. Uh, uh, the rain being, um, you know, backlit by the light. I think you're looking at other things. At yeah, this you are. You are, and I think it all works out. If you notice, there's no, you can't see anything in that pit back there on that shot. We still want to spend the money. What I love about this, and I love this in the screenplay, is uh, these guys came prepared. <laughs> you know, they 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 knew that the potential was there for these nasty little bugs to show up, and and they they had a plan, and those giant uh, flamethrowers did the job. 
I just love this whole set. It's really something about it. It's really fun, even you know, just the, it's the filmmaking of it, and it's the uh, the fact that we weren't out in the middle of Egypt shooting it. Even though you know we shot this movie in Jordan, Egypt, Morocco, and England, we were all over the place. It's still fun to like know that you're shooting this big spectacular sequence. It looks appears like it's in Egypt, but it's right outside of London. Movie magic. If you go back a few shots, you'll see when the curator comes in there, he pushes by a guy on the right, and that guy is Ardeth Bay. It's not something that. Many people probably would have noticed, but it is an interesting little detail. These two guys are really, real fun to work with. And Alan. They were just, I, I really had a great time with this cast. I mean, the same with the last one. I've just been really blessed with really fun, fun actors. Not only great actors, I think, but just, they were really fun. Past history. Alan Armstrong here, he's been in so many movies and he's such a chameleon, you never really recognize him, but I mean, I just saw him in the last couple of weeks, I've seen him, he's in the Patriot game and he's in um, Braveheart and it's just a terrific actor. And London is where we must go. There's Ardeth. I love this next shot. This is a totally synthetic painting by ILM. Very, very beautiful shot. This is how I thought London should look. <laughs> yeah, it's really hilarious. Uh, Roger Ebert, in his review of the movie, he was going on and on about this shot, about uh, this shot being for the geographically impaired or something along those lines. And it's like, uh, you know, we were in London for six months. I think we have a pretty good idea of where St. Paul's is versus uh, Tower Bridge versus uh, um, Big Ben. And we, we thought it would be a great idea to combine them all in the same shot. But... Um, I don't think he agreed. <laughs> but, you know, it's fun. It's, uh... I mean, if I was designing London, I'd have put them all so you could see them all at the same time. Instead of spreading them all over. Because with London traffic, which is miserable. It's a much better design. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, some of our... Um, in post-production, we had a... a, a the uh, visual effects editor was a British guy, and and uh, he, he was always appalled by that shot. This sequence here was shot in... Um, it's actually actually Ridley and Tony Scott's uh, offices on the Shepperton lot. The two of them are owners or, or co-owners, I'm not sure, of uh, of Shepperton Studios. And they, they don't allow anybody to shoot in this old house. There's this old house on the lot. and um, But I knew Ridley was doing Gladiator, and we both had the same boss at the time. <laughs> so I, I called up our mutual boss and said, could you ask Ridley if he'd mind lending me this building? And, of course, what was he going to say? He, he, he needs favors also. So that's how we ended up shooting here. And I, I thought they should have paid Alan Cameron, my uh, production designer, to leave everything because it's actually doesn't look, they don't have any of these lamps or rugs or it doesn't look anything really like this. It's really beautiful here. And the real thing is a little little cold. No offense, guys, but. Uh, I think this house, this house was used in The Omen. That's, I think that's about the last time it was used, yeah. Right on the lot, very convenient. Nice try. Now, these exteriors were shot in a different location, which is, uh, you know, typical of, uh, of many things you do in movies. Uh, the interiors and exteriors are often not the same place. Funny thing is, this exterior, the interior of this old house, is the British Museum in both movies. And the exterior now is the O'Connell household. Now, by the way, uh, it, it, it seems that... Uh, uh, Stealing from uh, tombs has worked out very well for the O'Connells because uh, <laughs> they have a hell of a house. 
<laughs> Brendan's going to laugh at this, but um, when, when he read, Brendan read the first draft, I think one of the things he said was, you know, I think I don't think we would spend our money on a, you know, big, beautiful house. Couldn't we just have some sort of, like, eccentric flat of some sort, you know, some apartment? And, and he was pretty... Pretty, he kept pushing that because he didn't want to f- have the Connells it's make it seem like um, that they'd spent their money on ha- a big house. And so uh, we searched and searched all over London. But, you know, eventually a, a huge sword fight has to happen here inside this house in two different areas. With you know, uh, And so I just, oh, screw it. <laughs> I just thought, oh, we can't find location, so let's use this because it looks spectacular. When Brennan showed up, he kind of just went, oh, well, this looks great. <laughs> he didn't care. He's okay. Well, it's a really great movie house because, uh, I mean, it's just so excessive and, and, uh, and so much fun. It's interesting in the, in the development of the script, um, this uh, fight sequence that you're you know, going to see in a few minutes um, was originally staged. Um, Jonathan had a, uh, was going to have a casino, um, and uh, that was uh, one of the few concessions that was made to, uh, to get the budget uh, down a little bit. It all worked out very well, though. Also, geographically, it was just very hard to find in London a house and the casino. It was the whole thing was as well as uh, as many locations as we had. That was a hard. We had a hard time with that one. Just do that. I hate it when you do that. Why? You feel like agreeing to anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this next insert was shot several times because no one ever knew what those were. And finally, we had Evie post over the shot say, What did she say? Knickers? Yeah, I think those knickers are not mine. Knickers are not mine. So people would know what the heck. Hey, what's interesting, too, is then Brendan, Brendan immediately leaps to Jonathan. And I'm wondering what he's thinking there. I mean, is, is Jonathan suddenly wearing uh, women's underwear? Is that what he means? <laughs> We straightened it all up momentarily. Oh, yeah. Evie ad-libbed that, and that kind of worked out nice. Oh, you're so brave. (laughs) And Rich. Did I mention Rich? What do you think I'm doing here? (laughs) Sorry, we must be in the wrong house. I thought you said... This was John Hanna's first day of filming. It was real fun to get back together with him. If you work for Johnny, I was going to pay him back on Tuesday. I don't know any Johnny. I don't know any Johnny. Don't ask me why, but Bob laughed every time he heard that line. Screamingly funny. <laughs> you're looking here for the uh, bracelet. I see what... Well, I have no idea what you're talking This is also uh, a set at uh, Shepperton Studios. <laughs> you got the wrong man. Ah, that bracelet. Yes, of course. Now I remember. I lost it in a card game. For your sake. I think uh, Alan and, and, and John uh, Hannah are really uh, terrific in the scene. You know, Alan playing it so straight and Jonathan. Uh, if you notice on that window, last. it's just a, that's just a painting in the background inside a set. We thought it'd be, you know, we poured rain back there and fogged up the windows a little bit so we didn't have to worry about exteriors. It does look a little bit like the O'Connells have some sort of industry going out in the backyard, though. <laughs> like, I don't know what they, what they painted out there, but it didn't seem to... It's actually a real snake, which, when she throws it, does become a rubber one. Didn't want to hurt the snake. I told you, 
And your point is? My point is, I told you so you wouldn't kill me. When do we make that arrangement? And then this little insert here coming up is a mechanical yeah, snake. these are mechanical right here. Uh, hello? <laughs> uh, Jonathan, I thought I said no more wild parties. Oh, when you're popular. <laughs> Alex, I'm serious. If you've lost that key, you're grounded. I haven't lost it. So I see that little uh, handkerchief hanging out of his pocket. That, <laughs> for some reason, that became a big deal throughout the rest of the movie. Uh, Sylvie, who's also been with me since film school, my script supervisor, she saw that, that handkerchief hanging there, and she's very persnickety about that sort of thing. So for the rest of the movie, you'll notice a handkerchief hanging out of Alex's pocket, <laughs> Freddie's pocket. Please follow the handkerchief continuity. Now that's convenient. You know, you always want to have a rack of swords <laughs> in your living room because, man, if somebody like that comes in, you, you got you got yourself covered. Addy was terrific. He was a fun guy. Again, I know I'm sound like I'm blowing smoke, but I don't have to work with any of these actors again. So it's like not like I have to please. <laughs> Although I'd work with all of them again in a hot second. No that guy. There's there's one of those extras there who's got this huge. See that over the right? See that guy? Doesn't he look ridiculous? It's like I kept saying. I didn't want ca Caucasian Arab stunt guys and, and in London it was that's what I kept getting. So we had to cover some guys up with with beards. really great looking beards, I might add. <laughs> oh god. So what you try to do is you try to keep when you have a little problem like that, you just try to keep things moving. And uh, hopefully you won't uh... But we had a terrific stunt team. Um I mean, was, this whole movie is very multinational. I think the stuntmen came from, uh, I know they came from Morocco, Jordan, Egypt, Czechoslovakia, England, France. Um, and of course, the cast is from everywhere, so. My co-editor, Kelly Matsumoto, cut all of this uh, uh, fight sequence here and uh, did a fantastic job. There's a ton of footage and uh, fight uh, uh, Fight cutting is always very uh, complicated. But she really kept things moving here very well. Or a Medi. If you go back there, there's a there's a good bent rubber sword there. Always amusing to <laughs> try to cut around. Yeah. Also, when Freddy gets thrown across the room, there he suddenly becomes a giant for a shot. <laughs> Yeah, that, was, that, that, that was his double. Yeah. If you go back, you look at that sword under the the, the old sword under the armpit stab. It's funny though, with the sound effect, it's really uh, effective. The, the actors here rehearsed, rehearsed, but on the day, Addy nailed uh, Oded several times. I thought one, at one time he broke his nose, but these actors really had to put up with a lot. No, they don't all, do all their own stunts, but in a movie like this. You get thrown around and beat and punched and kicked and knocked and thrown off of horses and camels. There's no, no two ways around it. John! Originally, he was going to throw that uh, that sword at, that knife at uh, the kid, but uh, some sort of child labor law didn't let me do that. Now, John Hanna here, it was his idea. He was just going to be hiding in this bathroom, and it was his idea to fill the bathtub up with water and uh, suds and be hiding under it. And so uh, when he destroyed his knee on that series of shots trying to get out of the bathtub, because it took us about four takes, five takes, and um, uh, he could never blame me. <laughs> I kept saying, John, it was your idea as he limped around the set. 
is nice though because it sort of illustrates you know how fluid things can be on a set where you know a nice little gag like that uh, wasn't written and just uh, just happens they all understood their characters I always think man Mila and her gang had the coolest cars these yeah. are uh, uh, right-hand drive Packards uh, and uh, beautiful beautiful cars I think it's very cool the bad guys you know they have they have to have the same car too they couldn't get two different cars <laughs> it's they a rule to, yeah it's a bad guy car rule A lot of lightning in this sequence, too. Yeah, I, if you notice throughout the whole movie, it doesn't matter where we are, I can get lightning into it. <laughs> if you notice that insert of uh, that photograph there, Alan was just like busting up laughing. I mean, he's pointing, what's he pointing? He kept saying, What am I pointing at? And he, you know, it's like, it's a ridiculous insert, but it really works. Bad guys are here. Evie's been kidnapped. Let me guess. Oh, this shot always drove me nuts. If you notice the previous shot, they go running off, and then we cut to this shot. And they stop. And I'm thinking, well, aren't they in a real hurry? Why do they stop? Well, they stop because Arthur Bay has to give us a lot of exposition right here. <laughs> it's just one of those filmmaking things. You have to stop the movie every once in a while a little bit and tell the audience some things. But he was totally game, so. Giza and whoosh, straight across the desert to Karnak. By putting this on, you have started a chain reaction. Strange things about uh, uh, the child labor laws. They're, they're very different over in England than they are here and they allow you to shoot all night with uh, with Freddie we got to shoot all night but only every other night which is kind of insane because you know by three or four in the morning the, the poor kids ex fried and then the next night he doesn't he doesn't get to turn around he doesn't shoot again because they, he has to have the day off it'd be better over here you can only shoot with a kid that age until I, don't, I think it's midnight and then you, and, and so so many nights in a row which is much more convenient as opposed to every other night where the kid is never we're getting over the problems. This sequence here is uh, the interiors are shot on a sound stage, and um, there's a, uh, a roller in the background that uh, creates that uh, feeling that they're passing um, lights and such on the city street. This is the uh, we actually shot this outside of uh, London City College um, because the real British Museum is having a makeover. They look very similar, actually, uh, the exteriors, but the real one was having a makeover, and there's all this really bad m mobile homes and, and dumpsters and stuff like that and, and scaffolding outside the real one, so we used this. Now, if you notice, in the previous sequence and this whole sequence, every time our actors are out, outside, it's not raining. Whenever they're inside, it's raining. <laughs> And that's mainly because I didn't want to take the time to uh, have to do, redo everybody's hair and makeup between uh, takes. So uh, when they're inside the house, it's pouring rain. As soon as they come outside, it stops raining. When they're in the car, it's pouring rain. When they get outside, it stops. And it just uh, saved us a lot of hair and makeup time. The sacred mark. Well, that? No, I got slapped on me when I was in an orphanage in Cairo. That mark means you're a protector of man, a warrior for God, a magi. Sorry. It's funny, in the first movie, uh, Ardeth Bay as a character is very, you know, cool and mysterious. And in this movie, he's just a chatterbox. I mean, every <laughs> opportunity, blah, 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 you know, this is what's going to happen next. He's Mr. Exposition. You can't have your lead guy giving exposition. It's just a rule. And so Oded, I said, well, it's up to you, Oded. And he was totally game. He knew it. And uh, it was real fun. This set right here. If you, you'll notice some uh, some of the tiling in the background, uh, they shot most of Ro the whole climax of Roger Rabbit 
on this. This is an old BBC warehouse, actually. And uh, it was really spectacular. It was this huge, empty warehouse. And we uh, kind of filled it up with some Egyptian memorabilia and played around with it. It was really a fun set to work on. It's a really big set. And we got to blow it up and have a machine gun battle, so there's nothing, you know. The only thing that was missing is racing cars, but we'll have that in the next sequence. This is fun. We had to shoot this whole sequence in about an hour because the sun was coming up. We were running out of time, and, and so all these shots, and when the mummies come awake, I had one hour to shoot this. It was just, like, insane running around trying to get it. What's funny is you have this gigantic movie that obviously a lot of money was spent on, and yet you still constantly run into things where you don't have enough time or you don't have enough money. Oh, wait till we get to the uh, the Tower Bridge sequence. I'll tell you about shooting that. Mummies. I had to throw some guys wrapped in bandages in here. In the gag reel, you'll notice that, uh, or the outtake reel, I guess they're calling it, there's a real funny shot. I'm trying to yell directions to the mummies, and one of the mummies holds his hand to his ear, try to, <laughs> try to hear the direction. I always wonder what happened to those mummies. See how we wet down those floors? Big shots like that, you don't think about, but you know, not only do they have to be lit and we have to rehearse it and get everything ready, but then we have to light all those flambeaux and uh, you know, light all the torches and wet down the, the, the floor. And sometimes by the time you're done, the floor is dried up or the, the fires have gone out. It's a funny thing about torches. You see all these people use torches in, in movies and you think, well, you know, they, they last forever. Those torches, any kind of torch like that, last. They'll stay lit maybe three or four minutes, max. <laughs> they go out. So I don't know. They must have many, many torch lighters in the, the ancient days. Just spent their whole day lighting those suckers. This is some really uh, killer work from ILM. Uh, Imhotep is uh, a vastly improved creature from the last show. Yeah, we really wanted to improve on... That shot right there of... Um, of uh, Patricia is from the first movie, and it was uh, quite difficult to actually uh, shoot material that would match with that so that the morph could be done. It was actually done several times. Yeah. This sequence, I think, is in the uh, <clears throat> the making of special effects, so you'll, you'll know about that. But this is, we really all wanted to go out. This shot right here where he touches her ha hair, that was a big, big deal. That was like a huge step forward in the CG interaction world. And, you know, in this movie, we just wanted, the mummy had to take a huge leap forward. We thought ILM did a great job on the first movie, but this movie had to be better. And they really did it. One of the things that's so difficult about doing a shot like this is um, when the shot was actually photographed, um, Patricia, who plays um, Mila and Anxunaman, um, had to perform that without anything there. The other difficulty, of course, is that the camera operator has to operate the shot without Imhotep being there also. So it's a quite a difficult uh, task to choreograph a shot like that for both the actors uh, and the crew. And Dave Worley, a camera operator, <laughs> drove him nuts because he spent, you know, 40 years of his life perfecting, you know, camera work. And, um, and suddenly we're asking him to do really bad framing. You know, Mila, you know, Patricia almost goes out of frame and, and it just it drove Dave a little crazy because he's, he's having to perform really bad framing. But, you know, he understood that eventually when we put the creature in there, it'll be perfect framing. 
Patricia was um, exceptionally good in uh, working without her co-star next to her. Um, this stuff is a lot harder than, than it might seem. I asked uh, Alan Armstrong, we were shooting these sequences, and I asked him uh, if it was difficult to perform against nothing. And he said, Stephen, many times in my career, I've performed against nothing. And he wasn't talking about special effect shots. <laughs> we'll have to go through his filmography and see what he's talking about. We had such a nightmare with the sequence with the MPAA because um, we were really, uh, um, they were really sensitive to the gunfire in the sequence, and the sequence was actually um, significantly longer at one time. It wasn't, wasn't blood, there's no blood in the sequence, and really you don't see, <laughs> there's not much death, it's just the gunfire bothered them. So, we tried to be understanding. What I love about sequences like this and the, the bus chase that's coming up is the fact that we, you know, we shot a lot of this in multiple countries and multiple locations and then you cut it all together and it seems like you know, fairly seamless, like it's all the same general locale. A lot of the gunfire, the actual muzzle flashes that you see in here have been added back in in post-production. The way that the camera shutter synchronizes with the gunfire when it's being photographed means that often those flashes disappear even though they're actually there if you're watching it on the set. So a lot of that uh, uh, stuff you see there has been added back in. If you notice those two guys who just got blown up by the flame, if you, if you go back and freeze frame through it, you'll notice, hey, they're we wearing big, big-headed plastic masks. It's always hard to ask stuntmen to run naked through flames. They'd rather put on these big masks for some reason. This is one of the areas I actually went over budget. I think I, I spent an extra $60,000 more in blanks and squib hits. But I just thought, oh, well, you know, this is one of those, those moments. And at the end of the day, we came in just slightly under budget, so it worked out. You just got to know where to, where to push it and when to hold back. This is a set, uh, an exterior set, um, out at uh, Shepperton Studios. This was photographed very late in the uh, production of the movie. <laughs> it was about five in the morning. We were all exhausted. I said, let's just do this as a one-er. <laughs> and that's, we had two cameras and just shot it, and it worked out quite well. And John Handel, like I said, he's, you know, look at that. Look at that bus driving. He has a career, you know, when his, this whole acting thing falls <laughs> apart. <laughs> he can always go to bus driving. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. <laughs> this, all, this whole thing, again, this is just like, uh, you know, we're intercutting between Pinewood Studios, Shepperton Studios, the City College, um, Sound Stages, Tower Bridge, Streets, Greenwich Village. It's just, we are everywhere. The guys you saw burst out the wall, those were, um, those were actually uh, guys in suits. These are CG guys. Uh, the shot where they burst out the walls was uh, initially meant to be a CG sequence, but um, uh, for budgetary reasons, we, um, like we did that. it practically. Yep. Some of these shots, it's guys in suits, and some of them, it's, uh, you know, like obviously that, is, those are CG guys. I think this is a very uh, strong sequence. Uh, the manner in which these guys move and leap is uh, very creepy. 
Um, it rhymes a little bit with, um, they, they did, there's one shot somewhat like this in the first picture where they crawl on walls. And uh, we thought we could do a lot more with that. Originally when I was writing, started writing this movie, I thought, oh, well, you know, the soldier mummies, people love them so much at the end of Mummy 1, I will, uh, I'll bring them back, you know, throughout, they'll be the main bad guys throughout Mummy Returns. But I thought, no, you know, I've already done them once, so let's just have them in this sequence. You know, we'll just, and I think it worked out very well. The other thing that was really, you know, important in the sequence and in, you know, writing it, shooting it, cutting it, was we wanted to keep the threat of these creatures real. Um, we wanted to um, have them uh, threaten, threaten and do damage to, uh, to our, our characters, which obviously they do in the sequence. And that, you notice in that previous sequence and in one coming up, uh, Oded just, you know, there's nothing there. So Oded is throwing himself at windows and over chairs and benches. And um, he and Brendan were rather beaten up in this sequence. It's, it's, it's very hard for, if you're fighting a stuntman or a man in a mummy suit, it's much easier because at least you have some resistance, somebody holding you back from really hurting yourself somehow. But when there's nobody there and you're throwing a punch and you, there's nothing to connect with, um, or you're throwing yourself back over a chair and there's no one to catch you. It's just, it's much harder on the actors when there's nothing there than when there's a, you know, a stunt man in a mummy suit. Now, Brendan is, is, um, is particularly uh, uh, good at that in this, in this sequence. Uh, he's a terrific physical actor and uh, he really sells uh, the fight. Obviously, we're cutting, you know, all over the place. Again, these are on soundstage. These are soundstage shots. These that you're looking at right now. All these in here. And then we'll, we'll jump outside to a city street, or, and that works. Now, this sequence coming up, yeah, go Evie. The sequence coming up with Brendan, I just basically would say, I said, told Brendan the setup that he's being strangled by a, a, a mummy, and I, we rolled camera, and I said, action, and this is Brendan just playing around. This is just him, there's nothing there. He's just... That's, a, that's a particularly great invention. That's all Brendan. <laughs> this was, I have to, kudos to Bob. This whole sequence with the bus going under the bridge, the bus was going maybe three miles an hour. Everything fell apart on that shot. The, uh, the driver the, panicked and hit the brakes and the, all these squibs went to blow the windows went off too early and it slowly cruised under the bridge and Bob through a skip framing and multiple other editorial tricks made it look really fun. Now for those of you uh, keeping track of things, how many mummies were chasing after the bus when it started and how many were eliminated? Well, four were chasing it and only three were eliminated. What happened to the fourth one? Well, there was a fourth, uh, fourth one that got eliminated in a tiny little sequence that went right there uh, that we cut from the movie. Uh, we felt that the bus chase was over, and we decided to live with the uh, continuity, uh, continuity error. Uh, a, a fourth mummy grabs Jonathan through the, um, through the side of the bus there and strangles him, and Brendan shows up and, and shoots him, and he goes flying off of Tower Bridge and into the water. It was actually pretty cool, uh, but it seemed better without it. Now this whole sequence, everything here, on this is all on Tower Bridge. And uh, no one had filmed on this since uh, a John Wayne movie about 20-something years ago. Um, and the city of London decided to let us shoot on Tower Bridge. And I, think, I don't think they'll do it again. They, they, they forgot what 
I mean, Tower Bridge, it's like the 405 in L.A. Imagine shutting down the 405 at rush hour. Because um, what we had to do, they said, okay, you can, you can shut it down for 20 minutes at a time and run out there, you know, because we had to clear the bridge. It couldn't be any cars. And we the first time we shut it down for 20 minutes, we backed up all of London. And Scotland Yard, honest to God, Scotland Yard showed up and threatened to shut us down and arrest us all. And finally they said, okay, okay. We, we Our guys talked to me and we, they said, okay, well, you can shut it down for 10 minutes at a time. And so that's how we shot this whole sequence. We'd stop traffic for 10 minutes, run out with our cameras and the cars and the actors, and just it was just guerrilla filmmaking. I mean, even on a huge movie like this, you have those problems where you can't shut down London. And so we, we still want to be on the real Tower Bridge. And uh, so that's how we did it. Each, each of those things, we just rushed out 10 minutes of pop, boom shot by shot. And there are actually a couple of shots because of the speed in which that had to be photographed where there are, you know, there's crowd watching the, the movie being photographed and in those <laughs> shots they were painted out. Again, I love Patricia's eye. Watch her eyes, her focus. I mean, there's nothing there and she has to really keep her eye line straight. This is a really neat uh, painting from ILM. Very um, evocative and impressive. And Leslie Schatz, who's been our sound designer since, again, film school. We work with the same people over and over again because <laughs> we find good people and stick with them. And uh, I just love when the sound effect he put in when her, th her thumb goes into his ear. I thought that was very effective in the theaters. Here, if you notice in the background, it's starting. We're running out of time. The sky is lighting up. It's 5:15. I've got five more minutes to get this, you know, that shot, this that side of this this scene done. Because it, see how black the sky is there. See at the top of the frame how blue it is there. <laughs> We're running out of time, folks. It's Monday morning and the traffic's about to pour in. The sun's going to come up and I'm done. Now this stuff was shot in uh, in Jordan. And this train is actually the train that they used in Lawrence of Arabia. In fact, that's why we shot all the train stuff, the exterior train stuff in Jordan, because this is like a one-of-a-kind a, a one deal in uh, North Africa. And so this is the train in, in Lawrence of Arabia, and we used it, and it was really great. Now, the interiors here, we were, uh, this is on a flatbed truck. This, we just built this set, put it on a truck, and we're driving down, just driving down the middle of a road in Morocco. But the exteriors were all uh, in Jordan. It's actually a very effective uh, set because one of the things that you get um, out of that flatbed truck set, in addition to the, you know, obviously the, the scenery going by, but you also get some shake and movement. And, and it not only helps the photography, but it also helps the actors because, you know, they're in a real moving set. And when you fake this kind of thing on a, a soundstage, it just tends to look uh, phonier. Yeah. Sleeping. This is, I remember, we had to shut down. We got hit by our, one of our first sandstorms. This is, I think, our, I can't remember what day it was, uh, second day, third day in Morocco. And we got shut down from a sandstorm hit us. And we had really, on Mummy 1, we had fantastic weather in Morocco, blue skies every day. Uh, we got hit by two sandstorms that shut us down for maybe half a day, no big deal. But on this movie, we were getting hit every afternoon by sandstorms. And, and, my second unit had to be evac'd out because they got hit by a flash flood in the middle of the dunes. And at one point during the shooting of this sequence, um, now a sandstorm hit us and a thunder shower. And so it was raining mud 
for about an hour. I mean, it's ridiculous. Sometimes we'd be standing outside um, because some of it, some of it that day was there's some exteriors we shot, and you'd be standing there and you didn't mind getting slammed by a sandstorm. But then when it started raining and you're just being dumped with, you know, it's like someone standing over you with a bucket of mud. It gets a little ridiculous. One of the difficulties about um, making a sequel is that you have to reference the first picture a bit, but at the same time, uh, you need to make it a standalone movie so people who haven't seen the first movie uh, can still enjoy it. In that last sequence, there's all this business with the chest, which you know specifically re relates to the first picture, and uh, you know it, it doesn't isn't really all that necessary for an audience that's uh, seeing. Uh, this movie for the first time and not having seen the first picture. So it, it co sort of complicates matters, uh, and you, you'll see that throughout the picture where there are references to the first, the first movie uh, to, um, for the enjoyment of audience members that saw the first film. Was that clear? I don't think it was at all. <laughs> I, I, think I was trying to follow that. I, I, I couldn't even I mean, I kind of understand what you... <laughs> Basically, what we're saying is that we didn't want to bore people who'd seen the first one, know the first one very well. We didn't want to bore them. <laughs> but so people who hadn't seen the first one, you have to keep, you know, you have to, they have to be informed a little bit. How yeah. can I, how can I cut movies? If that's the sort of clarity that I work with. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, just play it back a few times and you'll see. It made sense. <laughs> I'm sure it did. That's what I say about all, all my movies. Yeah, play it a few times. It'll make sense to you. Actually, we're, we're we're pretty anal about not having story holes, especially I mean during the script writing phase. We are Bob and I go. Bob goes over and over the script, and I will also because we hate having holes. And then you get into post, and every once in a while you say, you know what? It's okay to have this little hole because no one really notices or cares. And you do that for pacing. Sometimes you say, you know, this is here's a story point, but the audience doesn't really care, and it's slowing the movie down. So let's cut it. Yeah, I think pretty much you'll find that uh, any hole that exists. Uh, in this movie, and I, there are definitely some that do. Um, they're created uh, for pace by cutting material that would explain the question. We're really good on, on going in with fairly tight scripts. And I have to say, one of our, our bragging points is that uh, these two movies, Mummy and Mummy Returns, were, are extremely huge and complicated movies. And yet, after the last day of principal photography, we didn't shoot a single frame of film, which is pretty unbelievable. Most movies of this size would go back and shoot, you know, many, many weeks uh, of uh, pickups and reshoots and that sort of thing. This actually was on a, on a sound stage. We didn't feel that it was as necessary to have movement and light because it's a dark it's a darker set so we weren't worried about being exterior so we shot this um on a sound stage at shepperton although you will notice the set is being jostled by grips on the outside Jacques's hand uh, shakes there. He's he's afraid. This shot, it's funny because this shot is slightly out of focus at the beginning, and we picked it. It was actually a, just a. They filmed it, but it wasn't actually supposed to be a take. It was a second unit shot because it was a motion control camera that took a, you know, almost a full day. That this shot right here took a full day to do, and so second unit got it, and uh, we decided the best take was the uh, 
their rehearsal take. And so it's, even though it was slightly out of focus, it just had the, there's some, all the elements that was the best. So we and in, in fact, uh, the, the take had um, Arnold Vosloo in it, and he was painted out. This was, uh, this is when all the, I'd been in Morocco a few weeks shooting. I'd already gone to Jordan and Egypt, and this is when uh, Rachel, John, and Brennan show up for the first, this is their first shot in the movie. One thing you'll notice about that previous shot, that big shot, it was one of those uh, horrible white, sky blown out days uh, and we replace the sky in that that's another digital trick that you'll well you won't necessarily notice but is used throughout the picture we like beautiful blue skies but I don't have the patience to sit around and wait for them <laughs> because if you do you could be in a, there for for weeks sometimes so um, we just paint out the sky now this is another one of those locations we did uh, you know Alan would set design it but um, basically it was just, just a kind of it was just a little village that looks like that looked like ruins Okay, if you're still with us halfway through this movie, um, that guy, he was such, the guy who's unconscious there. Um, I tipped him big time because we kept having to slam his head. He was just an extra and a real nice guy, a local village guy, and I gave him a little extra afterwards. <laughs> he was very grateful and he was fun. This is a great intro scene for Izzy. He just really does such a great job. Real crowd pleaser. By the way, um, the name of this character, Izzy, is named after my dog who uh, was loyal and faithful and my best friend for 12 years and, and passed away two weeks ago. Oh, Connell, you look around here, any? Huh? What do I need? Okay, now here's a very important cameo note. That guy in the tub there that uh, Evie just looked at, listen to the track. That is director Steve Summers. That's my humming. I saw that toilet sitting there and I said, I got to put somebody in there. They got to be reading a paper. Got to be humming. Just. So, you know, not exactly as showy as Hitchcock, but, <laughs> you know, pretty good. I just thought it made me look more dashing. <laughs> it was my idea to put give Izzy, a, uh, the character of Izzy, a silver tooth, but uh, Sean Parks gave him four. <laughs> Decided <laughs> to add a few. He was definitely on board. Uh, you know, he, <laughs> yeah. he, he, under, he got the character. He, he, the character and the movie. Uh, you know, if one is good and two is over the top, go with four. That's what I <laughs> well, do. What is that sign? Isn't that some sort of live long and prosper sign that Brendan gives Odette? I never knew what that meant. See how hard that bird is actually flying. He's Not only is he on a string, which we had to remove, but um, this is where we were getting hit. If you notice this side, the winds. We were just about to get hit by a sandstorm. When we shot this side, it was early in the morning, and um, the wind wasn't as bad. This was really hard. See the sandstorm kicking up there in the background? Now it's gone. Every shot, we would see here it's coming behind the camera now. See the actors out there getting blown? Um, the sandstorms would come in, and we would literally, close, we all threw on our goggles and face masks, and everybody ducked their head, and we would sit there, and it would be a complete brownout for five minutes, ten minutes. You couldn't see six inches in front of your face and then it would go away and we'd wait a half hour for the dust to settle and we'd start shooting. Now that's a completely synthetic blimp. There's nothing there. We added that. That See that rudder in the background? That's fake. That rudder, fake. We just we added that in post. It was going to be too expensive and too complicated of a rig to actually have a even the boat, much less the entire blimp down in Morocco out in the desert. So um, we just added that in post. This stuff was photographed the last day of uh, first unit photography in Morocco, and it was a horrible, horrible day. All the skies you see here are 
uh, replaced. The bird was terrific. Here's a little story for you. Uh, we had a falcon trainer who came down to Morocco uh, and started training with Oded with that falcon. And after about two weeks in Morocco, he... He had some... He decided he didn't want to be there anymore for what... And he just, like, flipped out and left the country. Um, and so Odette ended up kind of, you know, with the help of some other people, like, training it himself. One of the things that we were always looking for in these visual effects uh, was the idea that you, as an audience member, would want to be there. Uh, these shots could be accomplished and uh, made to be uh, more realistic, which would have been uh, less beautiful. But our approach always with the visual effects guys, with all of these sort of shots, was make sure you want to be there. Right. We're not making a documentary, although the, the pyramids, those are, those are the, the pyramids at Giza. Those are the real pyramids, and those are real camels in the you know, bottom of the frame in that earlier shot. But... Um, you know, we'd shoot it at the right light, and then we'd have ILM kind of push it because we want, we're making a, uh, it's a fantasy a bit. We want it to be beautiful. Now, all this stuff was obviously, it was, you know, shot on a soundstage, and we replaced the blue screen in the background with the backgrounds you see here. There's a rather large dirigible set that's on, a, on the top of a gimbal that provides this sort of shake and movement that you see. If you notice that eye on the bow of this um, boat here, it's also on the side of Winston Havelock's plane in The Mummy. There's all kinds of little stuff like that we threw in here and there. I love him so much, I just I can't... We both do, and Alex knows that. I'll get him back, Evie. I really love this shot here because it's uh, uh, very beautiful and... Uh... And this would be a good opportunity to mention the phenomenal score that Alan Silvestri did. The music here is, is particularly beautiful. Yeah, it's great. And what happens at a certain point there is the actors turn and the blimp become digital because the camera actually can't get that it, you know, far off a soundstage. This shot here, or that wide shot, was photographed by Greg Michael, the second unit director in Jordan. Uh, the train is, and, and part of the sun are real, and the rest of the, uh, you know, the dunes in the sky are synthetic uh, island painting. Now, this sequence, which really worked out well, I mean, these two were really on. They had a blast working together. If you look out that window there, it's, it's on a, it's a blue screen. These are blue screen shots. We ran out of time in Morocco. We were going to actually shoot the scene in Morocco. But we had to... We had to on the flatbed thing. On a flatbed thing. But we had to get out, so we shot this on a soundstage with, again, the grips rocking it. And it worked out better because on a gimbal... For this particular shot with with Freddie and stuff like that, it really gave the actors time. And when you're when we were on the flatbed in Morocco, we really had to be moving because we run, we would run out of road. Whereas on that set, on the soundstage, we really got to rehearse and rehearse. And it, that that scene was all about timing. And so I'm really glad we got to shoot it on a soundstage. Now my main question here is where did these guys get their outfits? I mean, what is it like Evil R Us? I mean, it's in incredible. They've, they've found some place to get these, uh, you know, incredible gowns. Those are my handprints, actually. <laughs> I don't really want to know about that. 
again, Addie and uh, uh, Freddie had a blast working together. These two, you know, because it's it's one of their big relationships. It's Addie's main relationship in the movie, and uh, so they really rehearsed well, to, hard together, and did really worked out well. They really liked each other and had fun, and, and it, I think it kind of paid off in the movie big time. Yeah, they have a they have a great relationship that you know just continues to grow to the end of the the end of the film. That's also a visual effect. And the train is real, but the sparks are not. And neither is anything in the background there. This is just a train out in the middle of the desert. Once again in Jordan. Yes, in Jordan. And again, because uh, when you're writing the script, you just, you know, you, you need the train to pull up in front of Karnak. And unfortunately, Karnak is now in the middle of a city, and the train does not pull up, and there's no train tracks near it. This sequence actually covers every single location that was photographed in the movie to get through the sequence. Some of it was photographed in Jordan, some of it in Morocco, some of it on a soundstage in England, uh, and some of it in the, um, in the back lot in England. This shot always drove me nuts until we, it was finished because all you saw out there were English fields. <laughs> until we, the ILM finished the pillars. because I always see this shot and I always you can't really see the wires but I always feel the wires lifting the kid up <laughs> so it's not one of my favorites people seem to like it working with this bird it was very interesting because it actually all cut together wonderfully but working with any animal it's always very difficult to get the timing right but he, he did it Oded was really good with that bird if you embrace it if you accept it you can do anything again all the backgrounds obviously these were blue screen shots and we added these uh these backgrounds, our ILM did, and they were, uh, we kept pushing. Originally, they were going to be day daylight shots, and uh, we decided to make them dusk shots, just to make them look prettier. The backgrounds are actually real backgrounds that were photographed uh, uh, in the Moroccan desert yep. uh, using a, a helicopter with a Westcam mount. This whole sequence, when I wrote this, I was like, I, I don't know, I... I I felt like I was sort of on that day. I had to, I had figured, I'd already figured out the whole story, but I just thought, oh, when I got to this point in the script, I, I it was all about the two romances starting to come together, and the, uh, and the, now we find out why Ankh and Evie despise each other so much, and uh, this is the whole main setup for the payoff at the end of the movie. I knew when I was writing it that you know the two girls were going to be in, you know, basically Egyptian bikinis, and Rachel and Patricia were totally up for it. And I knew that I, the, the two of them work out constantly, and they're in great shape, and they really rehearsed to do this sequence. But I also knew we were going to need some stunt people as well, and I thought it was going to be very different. Where am I going to find two stunt girls who are going to have the bodies like that Patricia and Rachel have? And it worked out. We got some gymnasts from uh, France and England, some uh, stunt girl Nikki, and that who just, they just did a fantastic job. And this is, um, I'd say three-fourths of it is actually Rachel and Patricia 
if not more, fighting. And then we uh, some of the specialty shots our terrific female stunt team came in and pulled off. Yeah, everyone involved really kicked ass. I mean, uh, the uh, stunt women and also our actresses, uh, everybody really worked very hard on the sequence. Uh, my co-editor, Kelly, uh, cut the sequence uh, also and uh, uh, did a, an incredible job. It's um, almost identical to the way it was when it was first cut. Yeah, this is really, you know. And no, if you free, I know there's some guys out there who are going to slowly frame by frame through some of that. There's, there is nothing to see. We've covered up, <laughs> we've covered up everything. I know you'll, you know, <laughs> you'll be looking for something, but no. Sorry, guys. Again, I, when I was talking to Alan Silvestri about this, I just kept saying, you know, I really want it operatic, operatic. I don't know, you know. I just knew I wanted it big, and it should just felt like a big opera. Because it's old-fashioned, sort of sequence always felt a little bit Cecil B. DeMille, Michael Curtiz-like, and Alan Silvestri came through with flying colors as he did on basically every cue. Yeah, the girls got really banged up, beat up. They'll never be hand models. Their hands were all chewed up by the end of the sequence because as careful as they were and as much as they rehearsed, they kind of got beat up. Again, that blue sky in the background is just uh, a painting on the interior of a set. This next shot coming up is pretty neat because it uh, has in-camera speed changes, which you'll see come up here. and, and kind of puts us in in their minds it's very subjective um, and if you listen to the soundtrack you'll, you'll see that uh, the uh, sound design uh, does the same thing very effective yeah, I really pushed Leslie on that because if, if I did a shot like this again I would have more movement in the background so you could really feel the slow down and speed up to me I think that shot could have even been more effective but you live and you learn and it worked this next sequence coming up is very interesting because it uh, employs some photography from the first picture. This is new photography. Um, when Steve conceived of the sequence, uh, he always wanted to use photography from the original movie so that uh, it would rhyme with it uh, exactly. And you'll see that it does. The intercutting of this, I mean, I was just like blown away. Bob did this whole sequence, and when I saw it, it worked even better than it did in the script, I thought. It's just, I, I, it's amazing. You can go from four locations, three different time periods, and yet it seemed pretty seamless and flawless, and people just followed the story, and it, it really was a well, very dynamic What's scene. great about the sequence is it's, you know, it's something that only cinema can do, uh, that you're traveling across time and space, uh, you know, within the same sequence, and I, I think that's one of the reasons that uh, it's uh, so effective. In the wide shots of Patricia, in the first movie, to paint her body took like 12 to 14 hours. So in this scene, like there, the paint she's wearing, that took 14, 12 to 14 hours because that's all she's wearing is paint. But in the sequel, we go to the, we just use the wide shots. We had her put on a body stocking because I didn't want to put her through 12 to 14 hours for a wide shot.
This, uh, this shot here, there was a, a bit at the end of uh, the shot that's really very funny. Uh, um, one of the Red Turban guys comes in eating beans and, and uh, in the back, just in the background, it's a total throwaway thing, and Imhotep um, uh, raises his hand and, and throws him, you know, 20 feet in the air and he goes flying into the background. And it was, it's extremely funny, but uh, once again, that was another thing that was cut for tone uh, to keep uh, things a little bit more serious. Honestly, I'm not losing my mind. It all makes perfect sense now. And that's the reason why we found the bracelet. Exactly. Here comes a little bit more Ardeth Bay exposition. <laughs> Go old dead. What's particularly good about the way he handles the exposition is he fires it out quickly. And how does the story end? Uh, only the journey is written, not the destination. Convenient. How else do you explain Evie's visions? That it is your son who Even though it is kind of an, uh, mainly an expositional scene, I think it's, you know, rather effective scene, and it's interesting how the the lives of all these characters are intertwined. Yeah, this is quite a beautiful shot. This is shot on the side of the road uh, in Morocco, and uh, ILM put in our uh, the ruins in the background. So all the foreground tents and guys are real, but that background is ILM. When the time comes, I shall truly enjoy killing you. Again, it was always film, fun filming these two. They had a good time together. Little nice to me. Now where's my water? Like Addie's uh, slow burn here. No ice. Galinyaki. You really feel like if he has the opportunity, he will kill the kid. And look at John Hanna in the blimp. See him walking? That's a CG John Hanna in the blimp. The only thing real in this shot are the two guys running. <laughs> the train, the, the, the blimp, the uh, temple, that's all computer generated. Again, this is another one of these sequences where it's intermixed, uh, um, some material photographed at Shepperton Studios, some at Jordan, with a real train. Rick! Now, we always, we were a little worried about this shot coming up, and we seem to have gotten away with it, but boy, does that kid make like perfect sandcastles or what? And when when she touches it, look, it doesn't fall apart. <laughs> well, not only not only does he do such an intricate design, but apparently the scale is exactly right. <laughs> now, what did Alan Cameron say about that? I can't remember. He said something like, uh, "You said to him, Alan, no kid would make sandcastles like this. I mean, it's too intricate." And he goes, "Well, I did." <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So anyway, that's 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 the production designer. <laughs> and see, and once again, Alex's scale is uh, dead on. De he really knew how to make. Yeah. Now this 
part of the reason we didn't shoot this at the real Abu Simbel is because uh, now this, this is what it looked like in the 1930s. Now it look, still looks pretty spectacular, but it's a little sterile. They've had to move it up onto an island because of uh, the Aswan Dam. And these low angle shots were shot on the back lot at Pinewood. We, we shot them the first time in Morocco, but the sky was so black with a sandstorm going on in the background, it just looked terrible. So um, we reshot these low angle shots behind Pinewood. Now this, of course, is in Morocco because we're wider. Can't get away with that trick. Again, Alan Silvestri's score kicks in. It's really terrific stuff. This is a classic Steve Summers shot. The number of horsemen there is so outrageous. <laughs> Ludicrous, some would say. In fact, there are exactly 10,000 horsemen there. The way that that was done, there were 200, um, uh, 200 men in a group, and it was photographed 50 times. There's a thing up at ILM called the Stephen Summers Scale. John Burton sent me, and uh, on the far left, it's, it's little panels on the far left, it says, you know, what what the shot needs and the second shot says what what the computer can handle and the third shot it's like oh my god the computer's about to crash and then way over to the right it says what steve wants john often uh talked about any any time steve said that oh that's too much there was much rejoicing at ilm because those instances were so rare and they they saw it as a some type of minor victory <laughs> off location you're, you don't have total control and in this shot here at the bottom right hand side of frame there were hundreds of tourists watching us who we had no control over and so uh ilm just painted them out with this wall of water but see up uh, in the background there there's all these tourists watching us film we, we, we had no uh no control over this particular set the sound effects in this sequence are, are particularly effective Definitely worth a worth a listen. The, the, the Still listening to the, us. Yeah, exactly. The power of the water, um, a lot of detail. Uh, it goes from really quiet to really loud. It's uh, a terrific sonic sequence. about this this sequence starting here because it's actually quite, quite ridiculous if you think about it <laughs> but you know when I was writing it even when I was shooting it I thought is this gonna work I mean a blimp you know it's, but as uh, Bob always likes to say in John Burton it's Stephen Summers physics because uh, I, I think realistically that blimp the balloon would rip right off the uh, boat well and, and, and there is the minor safety issue of having a dirigible filled with flammable explosive gas and propelled firing, by a rocket firing rockets off underneath it <laughs> that probably doesn't make a lot of sense but it's a mummy movie gene or R roger <laughs> relax again these the, uh all the backgrounds are were shot at petra in jordan and uh which is the canyon of the crescent moon in the uh, third indie indie movie yeah and uh, our actors were on blue screens on the soundstage. 
This is actually a very complicated sequence to put together because uh, the background plates were actually the first thing that were photographed uh, for the movie. And uh, getting all of that material to work with the first unit photography, which is all the uh, blue screen material, um, was a, a, a big challenge for both ILM and everyone in editorial. But it all, it all came together pretty well. It's really hard when you have two different, two different pieces of film moving in separate directions to like, match them up. So it looks real, and not like some of the stuff you used to have to see in the, in the 30s and 40s. Here's another area where we have to go with faith a little bit with the audience, that the audience is willing to give us a break and believe that our heroes survived that. Um, I think that everyone pretty much did. In, in Mummy, when the plane crashed, we had a whole sequence where they crawled out of the plane and this and that, but I didn't want to do that where they have to crawl out of the blimp, so um, we just went right for their unloading the blimp, and it, and it seemed to work. We were worried about this a little bit. You notice John Hanna <laughs> there. <laughs> he's helping I don't out. I if you look at him, but he's... <laughs> this jungle was uh, also photographed in England. Back lot at Pinewood. We had really terrific light this day. It was just until we got here, and then it got a little, started getting a little darker. So, Rick, what's the plan? Let's find some higher ground. This is the sort of thing, this next scene, where we were running out of light on the back lot of Pinewood and um, right here. So we quickly, everybody grabbed bushes, ran across the parking lot, slammed them down, and we put our actors right in the middle of all this. So they're, they're st actually standing in a, in a sort of next to your parking lot with all these bushes because that's where the good light was. But it's a very compact scene, so it works out. I mean, I, I think it fits in. Yeah, you couldn't do it uh, on a wide shot. Yeah, it fits in very well and, uh, you know, you were able to get away with it. Thank you. I think in a scene like that, you really see the camaraderie at, of the people themselves, not only the, the actor, the characters, but of the actors. They, they all really genuinely liked each other, and I think that really comes across in both movies. That last effect shot where the bats uh, fly uh, past camera, uh, that shot was done by Matt World Digital. It's a very pretty painting. And if you know, the bats are the exact same bats. I actually act, asked Matt World to use the exact same bats that were used in a, a movie Bob and I did back at Jungle Book. And there was a, a similar shot, actually, of a wide shot looking down on a jungle. And they, this was like eight years ago, they threw these bats in for me for free. They were really nice. And eight years later, I asked them if I could have those bats again. I bet they weren't free this time. No, <laughs> probably not. Oh, this stuff is uh, this this sequence because again it was at jungle night. When you're writing a script, you ha as a director, I, I think of this stuff. I think, well, how am I going to shoot this? Where am I gonna, going to shoot this? When, when I shot Jungle Book, I shot a lot of jungle, and most of it's, it in Jungle Book. The jungles look gorgeous. They're just really beautiful. It was Alan Cameron fixing it up. But we shot them mainly in South Carolina and Tennessee. It's not because we didn't go to India. We shot in India for two months. But they're, the jungles are either too remote or they're very brown and and ugly looking actually and I wanted a lush romantic jungle and so when I started writing this script I thought well 
I set this whole sequence at night mainly because I wanted it for story. I wanted it to be scary. I thought it should be scary. But also, practically, I thought I don't want to be trying to shoot a nighttime sequence in some real jungle because how we, you know, to light it will be a nightmare and it will take forever. And so we, uh, we shot it in a forest next to Pinewood Studios and it worked out terrific. We just moved all these pine trees and palm fronds around and, and you get a really beautiful, scary jungle. Not soon enough. And if it, but if it would have been set during the day, I don't think you could have got a, we, we could have got away with it. I remember that. I threw those uh, shrunken heads. I thought, hey, I'm, I'm writing an adventure movie, and I can throw everything in the kitchen sink in, <laughs> as you'll see later on with the log um, that we've seen in King Kong. And I just thought, oh, well, you know, I'm in, in the jungle. It's an adventure movie. you got to have shrunken heads. Again, this this is a oneer. Just, you know, it's we did a couple takes of this real quick, two shot, no cutting. It's just the actor said, you know, Brendan and Rachel got along so well and they just did such a terrific job. I think you can really feel it. That there's such there's really good chemistry between them. Now this sequence is interesting because uh this is um this is outside of Pinewood. Uh, and then there's going to be other photography here uh, that matches in uh, surprisingly well uh, that's uh, photographed on sound stages in Shepperton. For example, this. This is photographed on a sound stage. Um, this is obviously an effect shot, but uh, some of the difficulties of a film like this are all of the logistics involved and getting things like this to match. All the wide coverage is photographed in uh, a real outside exterior location and the closer coverage uh, in the studio. Again, if it was a daylight scene, you couldn't shoot it on a soundstage because, you know, it, interior day just doesn't work. You can't recreate the sun. It, it always looks fake. I mean, it, they do it all the time in television. And you can always smell it a mile away, but you can never get away with it on a feature film. So this, again, is real jungle, and then you cut to a soundstage. And we had to do, replace all the, all the sound and dialogue here replaced because we have these huge fans. <laughs> that are screaming in the background. In fact, in the movie, there's an enormous amount of ADR. It was a uh, huge job for our ADR supervisor, Patrick Dodd. Additional dialogue replacement. Yeah. We, were, we had to lip sync a lot of the dialogue because of all the noise. And Like here, you've got these huge fans blowing everybody's hair. And... Much of what you actually hear in a movie is um, produced after the movie is made. Um, and that, that goes for everything from footsteps to uh, dialogue, to the sound effects. In any movie you watch, anywhere from a minimum of 10% to 70% of the dialogue is lip-synced in post because of, uh, of sound, especially the, in period movies, more and more. I mean, if you have a... Because you have to worry about car sounds and plane sounds and just... It's very complicated. And in action sequences, you've got... You know, if you have two people talking by a waterfall, you, I guarantee you it's been, it's been lip-synced in post because you can't hear it. Every once in a while, as a screenwriter and as a director, you, you come upon a scene that you just have so much fun with. And this whole sequence was one of those sequences. I just like, when I came up with the idea of pygmy mummies, uh, I, I remember calling up John Burton. I got to this, whatever, uh, when I was figuring out the whole script, and I just said, and John picked up the phone. I said, John, pygmy mummies. And he got extremely excited about that. And uh, we started going back and forth over the next couple of weeks as I was writing this sequence. And, um, 
you know, coming up with all the individual gags and ideas and trying to figure out what we could afford to do and how we could do it. And I just, I just love this whole sequence. It was really fun to write. It was fun to direct. And, uh, and I can't believe I managed to put a whole jungle sequence in a desert movie. Pretty tricky. I love these little bastards. I mean, look how much he enjoys stabbing that guy. They're very ill-tempered. Wide shots at Black Park. This is Black Park, and then some of the tighter stuff, soundstage work. I mean, shrunken heads, pygmy mummies, blow darts. What more do you want in an adventure movie? As originally scripted and originally imagined, this sequence had um, a fair number more uh, gags and uh, and visual effects with with the. Uh, the pygmies, and it was scaled back a little bit for, for budgetary reasons, but it worked out really well. It's uh, it's not that far from how it was originally imagined. And quite often you find, and I, I think you look back at Jaws, a lot of times when you're forced either through budgetary reasons or mechanical problems on the set, uh, it, it tends to work out to your advantage. I find that uh, a lot of times when constraints are put on you, you have to rise to the occasion and try to be more creative. Like that shot right there, it's just a blast. It's really scary, creepy, exciting, and yet it didn't cost anything. I mean, there's no CG involved. The thing that's nice about the sequence is that everyone, all the major characters, are involved in it. And they all have story. It's all about it's story, story, story without any... There's no dialogue, and it's all about, you know, it's action, it's adventure, it's story, character. Very cool work with the gun there. Good job, Brendan. These guys worked really hard for this fight. Yeah. They did a lot of rehearsal. I think it was a very effective uh, sequence. You really believe that, uh, that they're two warriors fighting to the death. And quicksand. See, <laughs> any, any trick. Uh, I, I did a quicksand scene in a jungle book as well. Any, any, I've watched pretty much every adventure movie ever made. and. Uh, you know, it's just things like quicksand that you fall in love with, or I do, anyway. I love this shot here when the lightning strikes Addy's face, that one eye there. There was a line of dialogue here, Art of the Bay, uh... When he looks at uh, Loch Nye, he says, uh, that was for Horace. We, uh, we cut that. Horace was the bird. <laughs> That's why we cut it, because a lot of people were saying, who's Horace? That always got a great cheer. I just love that. Addy, don't blink. It's really hard falling with, falling with your eyes open and not blinking. It took a couple takes, but he did it. This is always a great moment in the movie, people like, <laughs> it's like, when I wrote this, I, I kind of cracked myself up. I mean, <laughs> sacrifice yourself for me, yeah. 
I'm gonna do that. The sequence is recapped in uh, this particular shot right here in the uh, making of from ILM, so you can click over and see that. Hey, nice shoot, Tex. What were those creepy little pygmy things? There's the local natives. Are you sure? No, sure enough, there's nothing. Come on, Mom. Come on. Come on, Dad. We have to get to the pyramid. I have to get the bracelet off now. Oh, leave it on, Alex. Looks good on you. No, you guys. You don't understand. He told me the bracelet will kill me if I don't get inside the pyramid before the sun hits it. Today. Oh, my God. Time to go. Creature sounds here for the um, uh, for the pygmies are uh, a great piece of work by Leslie. Because we, we always felt that they were somewhat comic creatures, but they also had to have some bite to them, which makes it uh, a rather difficult thing to design their voices. And I think he pulled it off. A lot, we debated this a lot uh, in here. You know, we had music in there. We took the music out. We went over and over it in the dub, and then we ended up uh, sort of compromising a little bit. The music stays in and then ends at uh, uh, one point, and then comes back in. Uh, the music can have a big impact on on your perception of the scene, and a lot of time is spent while you're dubbing the movie figuring out just how you use it. If you see Brendan running across that log, he does a really good job, and yet his knees blown out. This is second to last day of photography, and I'd already broken one of his ribs and tore a disc in his back and damaged his knee. <laughs> and so he was really gutting it out there. Here's my favorite movie reference in the movie. The little guy riding it down is uh, obviously uh, a reference to Dr. Strangelove and Slim Pickens riding the uh, nuclear weapon down to his destruction. again uh, Steve Summers physics and but even John Burton up at ILM agreed with it because he said you know this is what they do in every vampire movie when the Sun comes up it doesn't hit the furthest point it, it chases them and so there you go Brendan is out racing light <laughs> it's very impressive <laughs> but in just in the nick of time oh I mean what would movies be without the nick of time not as exciting, I think. No. But Roger, Roger Ebert probably wouldn't approve. Actually, I think he mentioned that also. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I think he thought we were making a documentary. Watch it again, Roger. I always loved this uh, this sequence in the script, and and I think that, you know, it's very effective in the in the film. Alan Silvestri's music is lying here up until this point. I mean, it's it's saying everything is all right, and then out of nowhere, uh, you know, comes uh, Ang Sunaman, and uh, I think it's such a surprise uh, that the audience really responds to it. This again is, if you notice, all the background, see that beautiful banyan tree and all this. This was all uh, created on the back lot of Pinewood. 
studios. Like beautiful lush jungle. We had great light. We were, I mean, we were crossing our fingers. I think these are the, the only two sunny days that we had in uh, <laughs> when we were shooting in London. Thankfully, you're mainly on sound stages or exterior night. You're real strong. You're gonna make it. You're gonna make. These are always very difficult scenes for actors to do, um, and and I think that uh, I think that they they pulled it off really well. It's also hard from a cutting standpoint too, because it's really hard to figure out, you know, how you know how much time you want to to take for. Uh, you know, for the sequence for, for Evie to die, uh, you know, the sequence can be extended because the way these scenes are photographed is there's a certain amount of ab-libbing uh, to it uh, and figuring out exactly what the right uh, tone and length is, is is somewhat challenging. Yeah, because it can go from being dramatic to melodramatic if you're not careful. There's another, another place that, that uh, like so many others, that... Sylvester is just kicking ass. Uh, uh, and when we previewed the movie, one of the cards, it was, you know, we showed it to 500 people and only one person mentioned it, but they said that they noticed that there's a, you know, Evie's neck was still moving in that shot because, you know, what her, you, they could see the pulse in her neck. And um, we always thought, well, I guess we could have killed her for real, but. I think it would have <laughs> been the only way. <laughs> Rachel wasn't up for that, I don't think. Now, I have one question. Who lit all those flambeaux? Actually, in, in American, we call them torches, but over in good old England, they call them flambeaux. It's a great word, actually. Flambeau, plinth. What, what, what other favorite Englishisms are there? I think those are the two best ones. Those are the two best ones. For me, personally, it was great working with... Uh, it was so much fun on both these movies. I had a fantastic crew, and, um, and you know, mo uh, it was like 99%, uh, except for, you know, obviously the stunt crew and when we were in Morocco, but when we were in England, it was 99, it was basically 100% British crew. And I'm the only nutcase American running around on the set, and uh, um, I hope they found me amusing. <laughs> oh, I think they did. <laughs> That's what I hear anyway. Yeah, yeah, we had a great time. It was literally uh, the crews from Mummy One to Mummy Two are almost identical. There were very few uh, changes, and the people who couldn't come back, didn't come back on Mummy Returns, were it's just because they couldn't. They were on other movies. We had such a good time in the first movie that I just invited everybody to come back on the second one, and we got along great. And on the first one, I thought I think that they did. They were hoping I knew what the hell I was doing, <laughs> and then they saw the finished film and figured, oh, okay, okay. And so uh, when we did the sequel, it was just. Real fun. They they knew that I was going to get them out of the desert without killing them, and and that the movie would probably turn out okay. Now I just want to go on record. If I were ever in this situation, I would not put my hand in there. And it ends up not working out very well for him either. It's all special effects, shadow work, and stuff like that. This is another one of these duplication shots. You know, it's photographed out in, uh, in the desert in Morocco. The, a lot of the hills that you see in the background have been added in. Uh, the horses are shot in multiple passes uh, to make up this giant army. And of course, the animation of the scorpion shadow in the foreground.
funny is as Odette will tell you, and, and, and Mummy One, he wasn't he wasn't a real good horse rider. <laughs> and Odette will be the first to admit that. So for this movie, because he had to do so much more riding, he really trained. And so we were able to do so much more because the guy could really ride now. Handy axe is always good. I mean, you know, swords in your living room, axes in your belfry. I always love Brendan's reaction to this. He seems kind of amused. This is just terrific work by Alan Cameron. I mean, there's so many, so many sets, and this set in particular. Later on, when the two girls fight, he designed that set. And this used to be, well, first we had this set where you could see all the way down there, and they had to go in this. And then um, we just kept moving things around. Alan's so good at, at just quickly moving walls and, and statues, and, and he could make one set appear to be four. And so, um, as big as the movie was, and and as many sets as we had, Alan kept like improvising and making giving me even more sets to play with on the spur of the moment now we go right how do you know i remember uh, rachel's makeup person running up and putting lip gloss on <laughs> i'm like she's dead she's dead need that lip gloss i think it's interesting in a scene like this where john hannah had to you know carry rachel and take after take now rachel's obviously very light but Nonetheless, what do you very get impressive for John doing that. <laughs> what do you get? It's either a cut I on. I couldn't. That's do either it. a cut no. on John being weak or Rachel being heavy. Now what? <laughs> All right, I'll make it a cut on John being weak. Okay. <laughs> I'm certainly not going to pick on Rachel. <laughs> John will get you for that later. This is one of the you know, really, a really spectacular shot by ILM. They really did a good job. If you want to learn more, click over to the uh, the making of special effects. This gets a really good laugh. This is this was I always thought the scene was a little bit difficult because uh, the the tone of the movie here is a little bit more serious than it's been, and uh, yet you know we still have Jonathan going for laughs, but it worked out pretty well. This this sequence of shots right here, my, I think this is one time my, my crew actually thought I was nuts. Um, well, I just told told them to ask them to turn off all the lights on the set, and we dolly back. People were almost dying because you see all those holes in the. Uh, in the soundstage floor there, we were dolling back, trying not to fall into them as we were falling Brendan, but I just thought it'd be really neat. And there's two guys on either side of the camera with flamethrowers <laughs> lighting Brendan's face. And uh, I thought it was really just kind of a neat shot, spur of the moment idea. Well, it's a really great introduction to him in the scene. And much of this scene, in fact, is, uh, is lit with flamethrowers. Adrian Biddle, the director of photography, did a really fabulous job on the scene. Um, Using using those uh, flamethrowers as uh, light sources. Yeah, and the thing is, when we first designed the scene, when I wrote it and then we designed it, it wasn't supposed to have the, this this shooting steam and, and f blasting flame. It was just you know it was going to be a set. It was going to be lit by the, uh, the kettles of fire. But I thought it'd be so much more. Uh, there was about three weeks before we started shooting. I thought I came up to Alan Cameron. I said, Alan, wouldn't it be more dramatic if there was blasting flame and steam and everything was moving and rocking? And he got he got all excited about it. But of course, the set hadn't been designed for that. 
So, well, we had a lot of nervous firemen standing behind camera during the shooting of this entire sequence because um, there's four guys with World War II flamethrowers in the backgrounds of each of these shots, <laughs> blasting flame all over. And many times the set caught on fire. You, you would not believe how hot the set was uh, because of those flamethrowers. I mean, Morocco was 128 degrees, you know, on the average day. And that was hot, but inside this soundstage, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> you just, you were hoping not to catch on fire. It spontaneously combust. That would have been something. Yeah. Here you see uh, how Oded has really uh, learned how to uh, ride the horse. He does a fantastic job in this sequence. And once again, when we get into the battle here, you know, he's fighting things, and all these men are fighting things that aren't really there, which makes it very, very difficult. In this wide shot that's coming up here, uh, it, if you were to see the original plate, there's all these guys in blue suits that are standing there to represent the um, Anubis warriors. All of those guys had to be painted out when the CG warriors were put in. Brendan and Arnold did uh, such a great job in this sequence, too. Uh, it's very, very physical, and uh, even though there's not supposed to be any contact, of course, there always is. Yeah, that's where it's really fun to work with actors who trust each other, because otherwise, um, if you're doing stuff like this, and they're nervous about one another, you have to, you know, it becomes much harder. Hey, see, rubber swords. The other thing about these interior action sequences, uh, uh, they have a, a slightly odd uh, look to them, and that's because they're photographed with a different uh, shutter angle uh, on the camera, which gives it that um, somewhat strange look. Sometimes we'll cut out every other frame and skip frame, but that gives it a diff even a different look. Yeah, there's a lot of different techniques involved in, in the fight between, um, between Arnold and, and Brendan. I don't know if people really notice this. This is an exact rhyme to a moment in... Uh, Mummy one. There are a lot of those, and that goes back to the thing that I was talking about earlier, uh, that you, you have to try to please uh, people who've seen the first movie by referencing, referencing that picture, and so that happens throughout the movie. Again, the actors are pretend nothing's shaking on the set. They're just, <laughs> they're star trekking it. This is a very complicated shot called AB9, which the, uh, uh, second unit director Greg Michael photographed, and it's done in many, many passes. Each one of those uh, elements, each one, of, each horseman you see in there is photographed separately, and that's uh, that was done to allow them to integrate the uh, CG characters uh, more easily. Take Alex, go and help Rick. But mom, no buts, Alex. Come on, Alex. I always look th think that uh, Rachel looks like or Evie looks like she didn't quite come back right, you know? <laughs> something, didn't, something didn't quite work out there. I didn't mention earlier, but Arnold, you know, this big ball guy banging that gong 
That's a real from. I remember if you remember watched the opening of Gunga Din. That's how Rank used to open their movies. Big ball guy hitting a gong. There's like tons of movie references in this. If you know your old movies and even some of your newer ones, we go for it. Again, this whole sequence is very complicated. Just, I think that we reference it later on, uh, or in the uh, the making of section. But there's nothing there. And for me, as a filmmaker, it's there are sequences like this. Same with the, the entire climax of the first Mummy movie, where it, it's at the end of the day, I can shot list and storyboard the hell out of it, which I always do. But it really comes down to myself. I have to remember everything. If I forget one thing, we can really screw ourselves because we'll have to come back and reshoot. Or uh, you know, it's like we spend many hours lighting one, you know, one section of the uh, the set, and I have to make sure that you can't. Storyboards are great. But they're not everything, and um, no matter how much you storyboard and shot list, you just in sequences like this, they're so intercut. There's so much going on. You better be on your tails, or you're gonna get burned. And uh, it really worked out. Both movies, we didn't need anything. The music in this sequence uh, oh, is love particularly it. great. Just so primal. And the girls, and you know, that's Rachel. There's. No stunt gals going on here. They were going at each other, and they, they, again, they just really worked hard together and trusted each other. That's gotta hurt. <laughs> That's a very satisfying moment because, you know, Anxanaman is... She's a bad girl. She is a bad, bad girl, and, and you know, it's time that she gets her due. <laughs> hey, he's still alive. But not for long. I think the animation in, in this sequence is uh, extremely good. This Scorpion King character is a, is a very, very hard one to do for a lot of reasons, but the animation alone is very, um, is very difficult because of all of his legs and appendages. Uh, our animation supervisor, Danielle Jeanette, was just incredible. He's such a great and uh, collaborator and had so many great ideas. It was really terrific working with him. Yeah, it was very difficult because at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it is a fantastic creature. And if, if no one knew who that guy was, it would even be better. But since everybody knows who The Rock is and what he looks like, you know, that always that added a bit of fakery because people know it. Well, it's, if it, it, was, it would have been an unknown person, you would have maybe assumed that that was a real face. But I think people under, figured out that it was a CG character because they know that actor, that that person so well. Okay, we're not quite there yet. Yeah, no, no. The actors don't have to worry yet. Actually, I don't believe real actors never have to. Real good actors never have to worry. They're never going to be replaced because no matter how great computer generation becomes and how great the animators are, we love actors for that bit of magic they add and for their in talent and performance. And I don't think you can ever recreate that. Now, if you're a bad actor, you better start worrying now. <laughs> uh, because um, there are great animators up at ILM who will take over. Now, here's something for you never, ever want to leave a description of how to kill yourself. In your around, home. In your own home. Like, what was the Scorpion King thinking? Here's this animatic explaining how he can be killed, and he just left it sitting around his house. 
What was you thinking? That'd have been the first thing I'd have gone after when I moved in. <laughs> well, I said, oh, we're getting rid of that's this. Going. New wall, that's going. New wallpaper's coming right in. <laughs> this is uh, Brendan's uh, last day of photography, these, uh, these close shots here. Again, at this point, this is where his, uh, his knee's been blown out, he's got a broken rib, and a disc is torn in his back. So this is pure pain for him running here. He is, he's hurting. For the guy, he's such a trooper. Yeah, and he, he, it was time. We shot for 101 days, and he felt like I did. We ha let's, let's finish this sucker. Time to finish now. Right on schedule. This is a very heroic moment for Art oh, This music just knocked my socks off. Do, do you think we like the score? <laughs> yeah. Do you think we made Oded look heroic enough in this movie? That's a fun shot. Yeah, really great shot. That was really a complex it's a, it's a, it's done with a, it's a wire gag, and the, the stunt performer is sort of wrapped in a wire as he's thrown across the room that it unwinds. <laughs> so imagine being wrapped in piano wire and then being yanked 40 feet through the air. It's not real fun. All this was this entire third act of this movie was just not only hair raising to shoot and very complex and pain and difficult. I, I, I was gonna say painful, it wasn't actually painful, it was just very difficult. But what was scary about it in post production is that you know, we all, all the special effects didn't come in, they were all on schedule, but they didn't come in until the last you know, literally six weeks before the movie opened. A lot of it, and so, um, we were really holding our breath and, and going on faith. And it was really scary, but when it all came together, boy, did it come together. Well, one of the things that, that makes it particularly uh, difficult to cut a sequence like this is... is Nothing's there. Is nothing is there, <laughs> and, and figuring out um, the length of shots and the beats, and, and especially with all the intercutting. If you take the intercutting out of it, you know, between Ardeth and, and the guys inside, it, it, it actually is not as big a deal, but as soon as you add this into the, the mix, it becomes very difficult to put together because the creatures aren't there. It's funny, in that pit there, for the longest time, we didn't know what was going to be in that pit. It wasn't until uh, one of the last days of production we decided, hey, let's, let's instead of having it like it was going to be some sort of version of the underworld or hell, you know, volcanoes and burning and flame and stuff like that. And at the end, I thought, well, something should be actually pulling these two guys down into the pit. And uh, so that's when I came up with this idea for um, these creatures. It's basically all the people sent to hell, and now they're trying to drag our hero and Imhotep the mummy down with them. What was important about those creatures from a practical point is the, the beat at the, uh, at the end of the picture here is that, you know, Evie decides to go save Rick and Anxanaman decides not to save Imhotep and the, the, the point is, is that those, those characters needed help. And why did they need help? Well, they needed help because these uh, demon creatures were yanking on their legs and were going to pull them off into, uh, into infinity there. And you'd think you'd figure that out during the screenwriting process, but what happens in the script, it basically, the two of the guys that 
beaten the hell out of each other and gotten beaten up by the Scorpion King. And so when when it blew up and they're hanging there, they were so they were, the idea was that they were so exhausted that they couldn't lift themselves up. But when you actually got there, it's, it's read well in the script, but you needed this shot here when they're being jerked down. Because when I got there, I realized, well, Brennan's just, Brennan and, and uh, Arnold are big, strong guys, and no matter how bad they got beat up, I don't believe they'd have that much of a problem crawling up out of this hole. So something had to be dragging them down into it. There had to be a reason for this moment to happen. All these uh, stalactites uh, were uh, done via CG by a company in London uh, called CFC. And uh, initially the sequence was envisioned to be done with practical effects, and uh, it didn't turn out to be practical to do it that way. No, I was told, uh, I was told sort of at the last moment that, um, Rachel, that the none of the stalactites could get within 8 to 10 feet of her. And I thought, well, that's not going to be very dramatic or, you know, dangerous. And, uh, and so we decided to do it CG. We thought it would look better and be scarier. Worked out. So almost everything that you see in this sequence involving the stalactites and debris is um, is computer generated or compositing. There are some small physical effects on the scene. I mean, on the um, on the set that were uh, you know debris and such were dropped through the frame, but not very much. This shot was always very funny all the way up until ILM finished it because it was basically Arnold fell back into a black velvet mat and squirmed around. It was kind of like. Looked like a soft porn sort of shot <laughs> until ILM finished it off. Things don't work out well for Ankh. Nope. We play with this. We always wanted to see her eye there until that last moment. And we can't get enough of these pygmies. And also, you know, we needed at least one more climax. Yeah. <laughs> you thought the movie's over? No! We've got two more climaxes to go. Um, this sequence is also very scary. Literally, ILM finished this in the last several weeks. But I'd say these last shots were finished two weeks before the movie hit theaters. So it was very hair-raising. But it's just, it's such a big movie, and we had, uh, we knew we wanted to make that May 4th date. We wanted to be the first movie, big movie out for the summer. It was very difficult for them uh, because going into production, we had uh, a little over 200 shots um, budgeted uh, for ILM, and uh, it ended up uh, being a bit over 400 shots. So their workload was basically doubled over the course of making the movie. So needless to say, they had a lot of extra work to do. Yeah, it's very, very hard to count. People, you'll hear some movies say, oh, we had a thousand special effect shots, but we never count, you know, a wire removal can be a special effect shot or a sky replacement can be called, counted as a special effect shot. But Bob and I, when we talk about special effect shots, we only talk about the, the hard stuff. We only count that. The dirigible here in this, this there's a set that has the, uh, uh, you know, the, the top of the pyramid, and then the dirigible is actually on a crane and lowered in. Um, there is some CG work done on it. The top of the balloon is, uh, is, is enhanced there, but th this is, parts of this are, are actual, actual sets. This is always fun. Jo I just love getting actors in <laughs> positions like that where you have to put the actor, you know, in the movie. That's why stuntmen are fantastic, and you need them quite often. But 
You gotta get your actors in there. Even if it wrenches their ankle one. This was the last shot finished for the film. And I, I think that was uh, maybe 10 days before the, uh, the release of the movie. those of you who are still with us um obviously this is shot in uh in morocco and the blimp those are cg that, that shot was, was cg brendan and cg rachel standing on a cg blimp Well, there's a, a rhyme here uh, that that matches the first picture. Another one, yeah. The oh, please. Yeah. Oh, please. And this last shot is uh, is is really terrific. The uh, um, dirigible itself is again practical dirigible. The camera is craning back. And they go to CG right there. They turned into computer-generated characters. Which is a neat trick, and I bet really hard to do. We just write it. I just write it down and then ask ILM to finish it off. Terrific. Uh, I, I also, oh, these guys did a great job on the uh, title sequence. It really kind of kept people in their seats because it was so beautiful. Uh, this uh, uh, guy, Kyle Cooper, uh, with uh, Imaginary Forces designed the sequence, and he um, uh, he designed the uh, sequence, uh, the title sequence in seven, and and the mummy, and and the mummy, and the uh, first take on this uh, sequence, um, it it all of the images were a lot more. Uh, well, I don't know how how would you put it? Twisted, twisted, <laughs> twisted. I think is it. Kyle Steve, likes twisted and dark. <laughs> Steve, uh, S Steve said he he never wanted to see really what was going on in Kyle's head and. <laughs> And I, I think that uh, I think that he's right. But the sequence turned out fantastically, and actually it was also very uh, very easy to get to. This is really all their work at Imaginary Forces, and and uh, you know, just to finish off with one last uh, uh, applaud to uh, Alan Silvestri. The music here is probably the best in the picture. Well, again, I got to say thank you to my entire cast and crew. They uh, they made me look good. All right, thanks, Bob. See you next time. Bye.